as I walk from here into eternity. Billy Graham once said that you'll hear one day that Billy Graham died. Don't you believe it? He said he just changed his addresses. We lost a great man of God. Uh, but it's not the man, it's the God. It's the God in him. And he's the same God that lives in us. And the same God that we seek and adore and praise here this morning. And uh, God is so good to have given this generation um, a Billy Graham. So we're, we're very grateful for him. How many, how many of you who have heard a Billy Graham crusade message sermon? How many of you have been saved through Billy Graham? Anybody been saved through Billy Graham? Sure. Wonderful. What a, what a gift to us. Cranky people are not fun to be around. Cranky people are the kind of people you just want to leave alone. Right? I mean, they're not the kind of people you want to spend time with. You want to get to know real well. You, they, you, just, you just keep your distance from cranky people. Now, when I say that to you, I want you to think of this. Think about this. How many of you have read the prophets of the Old Testament? You don't have to raise your hand. You know, some of you did. <laughs> when was the last time you read the prophets of the Old Testament? <laughs> and you know, I wonder if one of the reasons is because they're just cranky people. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, seriously, they are, they are. They tend to be. Let me give you a few examples. Amos <clears throat> said this. Hear this word, you cow of Bashan, who oppress the poor and crush the needy. Isaiah said, stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Micah said, should you not know justice, you who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin, break their bones in pieces, and chop them up like meat in a pan? Now that's cranky. I mean, doesn't that sound a little over the top, you know, to you and me? Not only were they angry, but they also seemed to resort to bizarre uh, shock tactics to prove their point. Hosea marries a prostitute to show how unfaithful the Israelites have become. And Ezekiel, he eats food cooked over excrement to show how defiled God's people have become. And then you got Jeremiah, who digs up filthy unwashed undergarments and uses that as an object lesson to show the people how repulsive their behavior is to God. Now that's, uh, wow. That's over the top. Prophets are filled with stuff like that. No wonder we don't read them. No wonder we avoid them. Just sort of leave them to themselves. Why? Because we like happy books. We prefer the happy books. I know I do. Those prophets, man, they're, they're cranky. So why read the prophets? Well, one reason is because that section is coming up this week in God's grand story, the Old Testament, that you're going to be reading this week. I wonder how many of you are keeping up with that. By the way, this book is no longer in the foyer for you. It's, in, it's at, the, at the foot of my desk. If you walk into my office, it's right there at the bottom. If you need a book, you just go take one. Okay, it's right there in a box for you right now. All you had to pay for it, now they're come free. Now you don't need it. But some of you may still need one. If, you, if you're here for the first time and you'd like to see what this is all about, we've been going through this together for 40 days and uh, we come to that section of the Old Testament of the Old Testament prophets. But I hope you're keeping up. And in so doing, uh, the Old Testament will become 
clearer to you. Maybe it, you'll begin to see the sequence of things and how it fits together better, how the story unfolds before you. And also, most importantly, by doing so, the words are, are going to become more meaningful and going to touch your heart better. And that's what's really most important. But there's a better reason why we ought to be reading those cranky prophets, and that's this, that they reveal to us God's heart. Prophets are the voice of God straight from God's heart. You want to know how God feels? You want to know what God thinks about sin in our world? Then you read the prophets because sin is a big deal. Now, if you're here this morning... You're already feeling a little bit unsettled because uh, uncomfortable talking about cranky prophets and sin and all that stuff. And I understand because it's uncomfortable for all of us to talk about sin. But that's the reason God sent Jesus, our Savior, into the world. To save us from the consequences of our sin. And he did that because of his love. Now... You talk about God's love, and who doesn't want to talk about God's love? Everybody does. But you want to talk about God's love, you also need to talk about man's sin. And the prophets did a lot of that, because there was a lot of sin in their world and in our world today. And it's a big deal to God, and so too to the prophets of the Old Testament. And so let me illustrate it to you maybe this way. Imagine you are listening to somebody sing, and they're singing loudly, and they're singing off-key. And as you listen, you're thinking, oh man, I don't like it. Maybe some of you just had that experience just a few minutes ago. But don't look, don't turn your head, don't point fingers, that's not kind to do that. <clears throat> but, but now, if, if you're musically insensitive, it, it doesn't bother you a bit. I mean, it could be your grandchild who's singing off-key. And to you, it's, it's pleasurable. It's rewarding. It's wonderful. But if you are musically sensitive, let's say you have perfect pitch, that's a totally different story. Because you know what the song could be. And with perfect pitch, you know, perfect pitch, you know what the song should be and could be. And you know how far off the mark it's missing. And you look at tenured grandma and you think to yourself, how could she stand to listen to that? Because you are in pain. It's painful for you. You are in agony for the whole thing. Now imagine listening to that day after day, month after month, year after year. That's what the prophets of the Old Testament had to deal with. They knew the way it could be for the people of God. They knew the way it should be for the people of God. But what they saw and what they heard left them in agony. And if you read the prophets to any extent, <clears throat> you begin thinking, well, what's the big deal? Why are they so cranky? John Ortberg explains it this way. He says, the average person thinks society is not so bad. The average person thinks, things are generally okay for me. I know there's violence in the world, and it's regrettable, believe me. But just so long as it stays down there in Florida, 
and doesn't come up here. You know, that, I, I really don't want to think about it very much. Or take cheating as another example. I know it's not ideal, but Jay, 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 get yourself out of the ivory tower and pick up the Wall Street Journal. Pick up the business section. It's just the way things are, Jay. You just got to go with it. Many people react to poverty and disease in the third world the same way. 8,000 children in sub-Saharan Africa are born with or will, or will be infected with the HIV virus every day. 8,000 children every day is the leading cause of death. But here's what most people think. I'm just thankful they're not my children. And anyways, maybe their parents did something to bring it on themselves. I used to think that several decades ago. Most people think, so what if somebody shaves a little truth for profit? So what if somebody ignores the poor? Or somebody gets a little wrapped up in their own comfort, you know, and a little careless about remembering those in need around you. My world is not falling apart, and it's not a big deal. Well, here's the big deal. Prophets were given the loathsome burden of looking at the world and seeing what God sees. Knowing what God knows and feeling what God feels, and it crushed them. They saw rich people trying to get rich and turning their heads while poor people died all around them. They assumed God was pleased with their lives because their world was getting along pretty well, thank you very much, from their perspective. Are we any different? We really don't want to know the truth about what sin has done in our life or what is done in the world around us because, because we would prefer not to know because it makes us feel uncomfortable. Uncomfortable. Micah spoke for all the prophets when he said, if a liar and a deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer. That would be just what the prophet, that would be just the prophet for this people. That's the NIV. In other words, that would be just what the people want. Now let me ask you, what does beer do? Does beer make you more alert? Or does it dull your senses? it makes you feel more comfortable, doesn't it? That's what it does. It dulls your senses. And Micah says, the people, they want a prophet of comfort. Someone to tickle their ears. Someone to tell them what they want to hear. Make them feel good about stuff. So, why do we need to read the prophets? Because the prophets speak for God. Because prophets are the voice of God. Because prophets see what God sees. 
and they know what God knows. Do you want to, do you want to know the heart and mind of God? Do you want to be able to sing with Hosanna, Hillsong's Hosanna, the song we sang earlier, Break My Heart with What Breaks Yours? Do you want to sing that from your heart? Then read the prophets. And yet for some reason, we seem to omit them from our lives. But not this week. This week you're going to have a healthy dose of prophets. So when we do, when we do read the prophets in our daily readings this week from God's Grand Story Guidebook that you can pick up in my office if you don't already have one, what are you supposed to feel? How, how, what does God want us to feel paralyzed because all the injustice in the world that we're, that we're experiencing now? Does he want us to feel guilty because of, because of all, us being complacent or complicit with all the injustices or the prejudices in the world? The prophet Micah sums up the response that God is looking for from every one of us. And it's possible you missed it. It's possible for some of you who are here for the very first time, it's likely you don't even know of a Micah. And so let me give you a little background about this person. Micah, first, is a book of the Bible. And it's that top book there, it says Minor Prophets. It's in the Old Testament portion of the, of the Old Testament portion called Minor Prophets. Minor because the books are small. Not because their message was unimportant by any means. It's because the books are small, and there were a number of them. Micah is not only the name of the book of the Bible, but it's also the name of a person who wrote that book. God gave Micah a message for his generation, and he wrote those words down so that they would not forget. He lived about 700 years before the birth of Christ in a little town called Morsheth outside of Jerusalem. And scholars tell us that he lived about the same time as some of his fellow uh, prophets, Isaiah and Hosea. Matter of fact, some believe that Micah and Isaiah were friends or knew each other because some of the words from their books that they wrote are somewhat similar. Micah loved the common man. He hated corrupt politicians. In fact, his book is basically a condemnation of religious and political leaders who use their position, their power, to take advantage of other people. Micah was a prophet of social reform. He spoke in a day of, number one, international tension. Now, Israel was caught between uh, warring nations, Assyria, uh, Egypt, and the Philistines. The greater threat came from the Assyrians because they demanded homage from Israel. They were the largest one, and they demanded homage in exchange for Israel's peace. And this led to a sort of a, of a voluntary national slavery on the part of Israel. He spoke in a day of religious corruption. Again and again, Micah railed against the priests who, who took bribes, and then told the people whatever they wanted to hear. Seems like all the leaders were on the take. And he had spoken a day of moral crisis, moral chaos. It was every man for himself. The rich were ripping off the poor. The leaders were taking bribes. Everyone was cheating everyone else. The merchants couldn't be trusted. The leaders couldn't be trusted. You couldn't even trust people in your own home, in your own family. And if you think about it, Michael lived in a day not too much different than ours in 2018. He could have written that to us. So Michael wrote to a world that was facing huge problems. 
and he wrote condemning sin and hypocrisy that was rampant among God's people. And in no uncertain terms, he, he warned them against judgment, and he warned them by no, pulling no punches, by taking no prisoners. And yet dropped right in the middle of this severe message from God is an oasis of truth and light. A delightful passage of scripture. Only three verses long. Only three verses long. And it tells us exactly what God wants from you in the midst of a world of tension and corruption and chaos. Like the world in which we live. If you grasp these three verses, you grasp the heart of the prophets of the Old Testament. And that's why I've chosen them. Micah, chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. And in that Bible on the seat near you, in that white Bible, you pick that up, you can turn to page 867. I believe it's on the bottom right of 867. Micah 6, verses 6 through 8. Turn there and we're going to read it together. Well, I'm going to read it. You're going to read silently. I said that once and everybody started reading, reading with me. I said, no, 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 no. You all got it there? Okay. The question is posed. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now notice how these verses go from the smallest to the greatest, from the insignificant to the more significant. What does God want from his people? He begins with something everyone could afford, a burnt offering. Next he says not many could afford a calf that was a year old. That's the next idea. Third idea in verse 7, as for a thousand rams, man, only kings could do that. He goes on, 10,000 rivers of oil are well beyond what anybody could do. Any person could, no person could do that. And then beyond that, he says that the sacrifice of a firstborn child as a pagan ritual that surrounded the Israelite culture in that day. They're looking at the, they're looking at the nations around them. That's how, they, that's how they practice their religion. They sacrificed their firstborn. Maybe that's what God Almighty wants. And that had worked into their thinking. It had worked into their minds as a people of God. So I ask you, is that what God wants? No. That is not what God wants. You know what this is? This is Monty Hall's let's make a deal religion. Whatever you want, Lord, I'll do it. I'll do it. You, you name the price and we'll take care of it. They actually thought God could be bought and trade forgiveness for sacrifice. In essence, they were trying to buy God off just as they were buying all their, their uh, uh, leaders off. And we do the same thing. In a similar way, we say, Lord, I'll do anything you want. You name the price. You want me to come to church once a month? Okay, I'll do it. You want me to stay single? You want me to stay married? Lord, I'll be a preacher. I'll be a pastor. Whatever, whatever you want. I'll be a missionary. I'll, I'll go. I'll be a deacon. I'll be an elder. What do you want? You want me to read the Bible every day? Okay, I will this week and twice on Sunday. Whatever it takes. Whatever you want from me. Whatever you want me to do. I mean it, Lord. I'll do it. I'll do my part. And I'll expect you to do yours. Now, don't get me wrong. God is pleased when we offer ourselves to him. 
But here's the point. Those answers only deal with the external. They only deal with the outside. What did we learn last week from King David? God is looking for man's heart. God wants your heart. Because God knows you can be a preacher and have a hard heart. You can be a missionary and have a rebellious heart. Oh, you can be real religious and be far away from God. God rejected every offer made by the Israelites because they completely missed the point. They wanted to make a deal with God. Well, Micah continues, and you've got to see this. Verse 8. So let your eyes look at verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? This is what God wants from you. Micah highlights three things. Number one, God wants you to do justice. Think for a moment how mad we get when we have someone deal with us unfairly, unjustly. I didn't deserve that. Don't you hate it? And every one of us here could stand up and every one of us could tell a, a sob story, a real sob story, a real deal, where you were, you were put, the screws were put to you. And it wasn't right. And we, our blood would all boil for you. We go to the movies and we, we watch movies of someone who's been wronged or hurt and they're trying to get revenge for the rest, of the rest of the movie. We dream about getting revenge. And God is telling you and me, through Micah, to get at least as energized about someone else's being the victim of injustice as you are when you're the victim. That's what God's telling us. The following is from a book by Miroslav Volf, a great Christian thinker in our day, entitled Exclusion and Embrace. It's written in the first-person story of a woman who lives in Eastern Europe. Quote, I'm a Muslim, she said. I'm 35 years old. To my second son, I gave the name Jihad so he would not forget the testament of his mother, revenge. The first time I put my baby at my breast, I told him, May this milk choke you if you forget. The Serbs taught me how to hate. Unquote. And then the woman goes on to describe her work as a teacher in this community. And the very people that she taught and cared for became her enemies. She says, quote, My student Zoran, the only son of my neighbor, urinated into my mouth. And as the bearded hooligan stood around laughing, he told me, you are good for nothing else, you stinking Muslim woman. Unquote. We live in a world of injustice, big and small. And it goes on every day and everywhere. And Micah says, this is what God requires of you in this kind of day to do justice. To be an agent of justice 
Now, I can't correct all the injustices in the world, and neither can you. But we can do something. I can pray. I can notice. I can study, pay attention. I can be thoughtful about what's going on in our world. I can pay attention to companies or corporations or governments that are just and those that are not. I can ask God to help me treat others fairly. And I can at least have the courage to stand up for people who are getting treated unfairly in my little world, in my school, in my office, in my neighborhood, or in my home. When someone at recess is being bullied and picked on, why not go up to those few and say, hey, why don't you leave him or her alone? They didn't do anything to you. When Alpha Pregnancy puts on a fun drive, we create spare change and put it in a baby's bottle, and that's great. But maybe, maybe because God has put the burden for unwed pregnancies on your heart, because maybe you or someone else who's very close to you has had one. And so you call Alpha Pregnancy and ask if they need volunteers. See, I who have so much more than I need, and I who, who has so much more than I deserve, I can give to others who don't have what I have, who don't have as much of food or home or hope. And you know what the Lord requires of you? Do justice in your little world. God also wants you to do justice, and secondly, love kindness. It's a Hebrew word, chesed. It's a word that speaks of God's covenantal relationship to his people, and frankly, to all people. Loving kindness expressed in that covenant. It means loyal love, covenant love, patient love, or steadfast love that always seeks to express itself in action. It means loving the unlovely even when they can't love you back. And it speaks of our obligation to care for people who don't care for us. Like Jesus did. It's doing unto others as God has done to you. So let me ask, how's God treated you lately? Pretty good, huh? Yeah, I think so. Has God blessed you? Then bless others. Has God forgiven you? Then forgive others. Has God lifted you up when you were down? Then lift somebody else up when they're down. Has God overlooked your faults? Then overlook the faults of others. Love kindness. I think I'm a nice guy. I think that's something I got going for me. But loving kindness is something I'm learning from others, learning from people like my wife, Kimmy. She does it better than most. 
Not long ago, Kim and I were at a seminar where parents were standing up and giving testimonies of uh, the very difficult matters in their life. And they talked about broken homes and broken marriages and broken lives and broken children. And there was this one lady who, who spoke very broken English. And when it was her turn, with great difficulty, she stood up and tried as best she could to express herself with this language barrier. And uh, I honestly couldn't make out everything she was saying, but I'll tell you, you couldn't help but understand her heart. And when she sat down, it was time for a break, thankfully. And so I, I stood up, and I do what I normally do when I've been sitting too long in a place. I, I stretch my back. So while I'm stretching my back, Kim stands up. And she walks over to this stranger, this, this woman of another culture, doesn't barely speak English, who she's never met, and immediately wrapped her arms around her. And they embraced each other several seconds, tears coming down both their eyes, both their faces. And as I witnessed this, I began to think how different my wife is than me. She gives Christian love generously. Her her Christian walk is filled with Christians and non-Christian friends. And she's open about her faith. She's open about her hope and her love and her faults. I have Christian friends, mostly. Uh, I mostly love those who are already Christian. And I usually try to keep things close to my vest. But I'm learning how to love others like, like Kim. How to love kindness and spread it around. Because if God loves me, and he has shown kindness to me, I should be moved by that kindness and love to to action, to express that love and kindness to others. Shouldn't I? Shouldn't you? What does God require of you? Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. I think Mike included that one because as a prophet, that's that's a tough order. That's a pretty tough one to do. It's hard work to be a prophet and not be self-righteous about it, wouldn't you think? I mean, sometimes Christians have a real problem with that. Ever noticed? (laughs) We can be so self-righteous. C.S. Lewis wrote, Anger is the fluid that love bleeds when it gets cut. When love gets cut, it bleeds anger. And God's anger is fierce when he sees injustice and greed and oppression because God's love is fiercer still. And a true prophet remembers that he or she too is just another one of the sinful creatures placed on this earth that's helped to mess this earth up. And so they walk humbly. Sinner saved by grace. What is humility? 
It's having the right view of yourself because you have a right view of God. And if you don't have a right view of God, then you likely have a distorted view of self. And there's a lot of godless people who avoid God, who have a very distorted view of who they are and what they are. Can you imagine what would happen if for just one week we all made it the focus of our lives to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Yes, I... You and I need to listen to the voice of the prophets. Because in listening to the voice of the prophets, we listen to the voice of God. Are you listening to God's voice? It wasn't very popular in Micah's day. And it's not very popular in ours either. Recently, Joy Behar of ABC's The View made reference to Vice President Mike Pence's faith and said this, Maybe you caught it this past week. Quote, It's one thing to talk about Jesus. It's another thing when Jesus talks to you. That's called mental illness, if I'm not correct. Hearing voices. And with that, she got a resounding loud applause and lots of laughs. Except Vice President Pence wasn't laughing. And neither should we who live by faith and follow and listen to the greatest prophet who ever lived, Jesus, who died and who rose again to life, to grant that life to you and me simply for the asking. This week as you study the Old Testament prophets from God's grand story. I want you to listen to the voice of God as he speaks to you and into your heart, revealing to you his own heart about sin and comfort and complacency. What's God require of you? To be an agent of justice in your little world. To express love and kindness and to walk humbly with your God, having a proper view of him and a proper view of yourself. It is a big deal. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we ask that you would break our hearts with what breaks yours and drive from us complacency and self selfishness deepen our love for Jesus and make us be less me-centered more Christ-centered may we learn from the prophets this week as we read them as we study them to see our world as they see it and more importantly, as you see it. We thank you, our Father, for what you're going to do in our lives to transform us to the image of Jesus, our Savior, this week. In his name we pray.
Amen.